0: Thank you for tuning in and now for this week's show. Hello and welcome back to this week's episode of the Turkey Hunter Podcast. You are listening to episode number 411, Trapping for Better Wild Turkey Hatches with Bill Duke. And I am your co-host and the guy who is headed to... To the hunting camp this weekend
1: and i'm your co-host and the guy who's going to be doing unboxing for several hours today
0: (laughs) yes you are (laughs) you're going to be pretty busy
1: i may have gone overboard who knows we'll see but i got plenty of traps i got plenty of traps i've effectively quadrupled my trap line today Mm. and so i'm gonna start rigging them up and hopefully get them out next week
0: Very cool. So you got live traps and DPs.
1: Yeah. You know, I just, in my mind with trapping, and we'll talk about this, you know, a couple weeks when it's just us, but I I don't think it can be a bad thing to have variety because there's probably some coons on the property that would rather walk into a trap than stick a paw in a trap or a possum or whatever and vice versa. So I'm going to run both. You know, also with the live trap, there's the chance of catching fox or skunk even, you know, like, uh, like Alan said last week with skunks, you kind of got to set the DP a little different to get his little paws in there, but the live trap it should be pretty easy. So I got 20 live traps and 24 dog proofs to add to the, the trap line hmm. and I'm pumped. I'm ready to go.
0: Well, start this weekend. I've, now that Tennessee's opened the season up, take advantage of it.
1: I, I plan to if my other supplies will come in where I can make anchors for everything. Oh, uh, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. But Definitely uh, don't want to buy two dozen DPs and donate those to the raccoons running around the woods. Yeah. Clank, 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 dragging yeah. their traps off.
1: One raccoon with four DPs on him just running yes. around on, on all DPs. Yeah.
0: So, the this will be a good lesson, and I don't mind sharing it now. You know what? I'm not going to do it. I'm going to wait until you and I have our episode. I'm going to give a story of what not to do, but I'm going to have to have you remind me because I won't remember. All right. I'm going to write it on my little note here, on my notebook. So, what not to do when trapping with dps okay there's my note got my reminder but i still need you to remind me to read my reminder i'll do it okay i will do it so i want you to keep us updated you've done pretty good so far to give you some credit you've done pretty good so far keeping us updated on your your coon count yeah for the year and i want you to continue that out through the end of the year
1: yeah i plan to i'm, I'm doing a little survey i started february 1 and so i'm going to say my calendar year it's a fiscal year is going to go to february 1 to see how much damage we can do but i'm at 82 still 11 possums 67 raccoons two snakes and a coyote
0: <laughs> two snakes all right
1: yeah snakes don't get a pass i mean that's a that is a nest rating dude right there Absolutely. And poult killer, you you read Joe Hudo's book, Illumination in the Flatwoods*. What shows up a lot? Snakes. And what kills one of the poles he had? A snake. Mm-hmm. So they're they're bad dudes. I mean, he noticed and noted in that journal, which is the book, that all of a sudden his snake observations went significantly higher once he had those turkeys. So they count to the predator total.
0: Yeah. When you make your living off the land, you will do what you have to do to make a living. So Ugh. snakes, they got to eat and they're going to do what they have to do to eat. Don't, I mean, I, I don't know much about snakes, but I have a hard time thinking that if one finds a nest, eats two or three eggs out of that nest today, that, you know, he's going to go far away and forget about that nest. Uh, I tend to think that he probably is coming back. But what do I know? Again, I'm no snake expert. Yeah. So.
1: Well, how long do we have till spring turkey season, my man? Because I'm starting to get that itch. You know, summer's finally winding down. Fall turkey season's almost here, but I'm always looking to spring. And, you know, a little bit of cool weather last week before this heat wave. Oh, man. Had me finally thinking a little bit about spring. And that got corrected with the record index today. But. Yeah. how long we got
0: brutally hot today but we are almost at that six-month mark i mean close to the six-month mark 184 12 45 and 25 seconds
1: man you can take 23 days off that get past the six-month mark and you and i'll be hunting in 161 days
0: nice i'm ready
1: i'm so ready
0: i am ready for sure yeah
1: What do you say we hop in here? We've got Bill Duke from Duke's Traps. If you've trapped at all or been around trapping, you've probably heard of Duke's. I'd say it's kind of the staple in the trapping world.
3: Mm -hmm. And
1: this episode's not going to be particularly just methods of trapping. It's going to be a lot of history of trapping and a lot about Duke's and the company. And it's really interesting, you know, and you can pick up some tips on trapping in here as well, so... We cover,
0: yeah, we cover a wide array of questions and topics in yeah, the interview, I mean, which is pretty oh, interesting yeah. to me.
1: Yeah, I, I thought it was fascinating. I enjoyed it. Heck of a guy. And, and I say we hop in here and let everybody hear what we have to say. Let's do it. See you guys on the other side.
0: Hey, everybody. Cameron and I are glad to tell you that we have on the line with us today Mr. Bill Duke, who is the head man in charge of Duke traps and we thought you know if we're going to talk about trapping well we had a pretty good source on last week how can we top that or at least equal that and uh, Cameron said you know what why don't we try to get Bill Duke on with Duke traps I thought well that's a good one so (laughs) Cameron reached out to Bill I think that you know fortunately for me and Cameron Bill had not been run off by his previous Conversations with Cameron. Cameron was trying to buy some traps from Bill, and you know, but but Bill, being a kind person like he is, stuck around and and didn't run Cameron off. And so here we are. That gave us a, a foundation for a relationship and being able to get Bill on with us today. And I've learned a little bit more about Bill and and his company over the past several days. And I'm just thrilled to have him on the show with us today. To be able to pick his brain not only about trapping but a little bit of history of the company as well. So, Bill, thank you for taking time out of your day to come on the show with us. And how are you today?
2: Oh, I'm doing good. I'm I'm thrilled to be a part of what you guys have, and uh, I, I think it's uh, it's going to going to be a good, interesting conversation. We got a lot of stuff to talk about. yes,
0: <laughs> for sure. So, Cameron, do you want to share your experience with? bill and his company
1: yeah i just uh, essentially i've used duke traps in the past specifically the dog proofs and they're just so simple and easy and and work great that i wanted to get more and i also wanted to get a bunch of the cage style live traps and so for what i'm trying to do with raccoons possums potentially fox skunk you know just a plethora of animals i got the heavy duty large cage traps and so i I ordered a a pretty massive bulk order from duke's traps i literally placed the order like yesterday afternoon and picked them up at like eight this morning at my local co-op so the the shipping was honestly unbelievable even even the co-op was impressed
0: (laughs) that's awesome
1: so i'm looking forward to running several duke traps this this fall and winter and I've just had good success with them. And, you know, I like buying my traps from someone else in the southeast here and, and a company that's been around for a long time. And so, and after talking to Bill, I think I, I definitely want to stick around with him. He's a, he's a heck of a nice guy. So that's been my experience with them. Hopefully they lead to the demise of many a raccoon and, and possum and nest raider this winter.
0: I believe they probably will. I feel sorry for all those critters that are that are residing on your farms currently. Uh, So
1: if their paws come out of the tree on our farm, they're probably stepping in a trap.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You may have to put warning signs up all around the perimeter of your property so that humans can can know not to step foot on there so that they don't get a finger or something stuck in a trap. Yeah. Watch out. You trying to eat a marshmallow. (laughs) Try to put a finger
1: somewhere you're gonna end up the dog proof. That's just how it's gonna be. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yep. If you're if you are in a survival situation in Tennessee, anytime this winter, and you step on a piece of property and you smell marshmallows or you smell cat food and you're hungry, do not go for it. No, it is it a trap.
1: On it, yeah, it is but a trap. Bill, you sent us over. Uh, I guess a talk you did for a Rotary Club that was just fascinating. Would you kind of share the origin, you know, of Dukes and how it started and and the transition to trapping?
2: Yeah, yeah, I'd be glad to. So I'm a third generation uh, family member that work here and it started with my grandparents. They operated stores and bought pecans and fur. It was just a trading-type thing they did that, uh, that turned into something a little larger than, than the store business they did. We still do that. Uh, we still buy fur uh, on a much smaller scale than, uh, than we used to. We still deal in pecans. We have a retail shop here but you know one thing i find really interesting i think comparing our business to a lot of other businesses that uh, if you're going to be around sometimes you have to you have to transition to something different from you know from those original businesses uh, that that you started out with so uh yeah so the pecan business something we still do the fur business is something we do but traps are are an item that have traditionally been been sold by fur dealers and back in the mid 80s we Decided to develop our own uh, line of traps. It was uh, just an experiment uh, to see if you know see how well the product would sell. And and I think over over a couple of decades, as as the landscape changed, different competitors go out of business. Uh, we ended up uh, having a, having a sizable share of the of the market in in traps. But it's you know it's a seasonal business, like a lot of things, and and it's also cyclical. Uh, we've seen some really ups and we've seen some really down years too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think, I think staying in it uh, year after year is, uh, is what, you know, is what separates us from, from people that maybe were in it years ago that are no longer in it. Yeah. I mean,
1: like, so back in the eighties specifically mentioned in that piece, the fur portion of the business, I assume was a pretty big deal.
2: It was a really big deal, big, big deal for us. Uh, I was born in '72, and I guess around the time I was six, seven years old, I had a fairly, you know, memorable time uh, in the fur business with my dad. Uh, but we had buying routes that ran Mississippi, Alabama, the Florida Panhandle. Bought a lot of fur. I mean, twenty-five thousand coon a year was uh, was a big figure at at that time. Wow. wow. <laughs> yeah.
1: That's that's a several raccoons. <laughs>
2: Yeah, several raccoons and a lot of work, too. Uh, that to, to buy that kind of number, it you have to travel a lot of distance, too.
1: Were you all buying, like, tanned, already finished product, or were you buying them straight, you know, I guess before tanning and then you all tanned and sold them?
2: Yeah, most of the, the trappers and cocoon hunters would, would sell the skins in uh, green form. Uh, That would just be skinned out. Uh, They would usually roll those up in uh, bread bags and and freeze until they were ready to sell and then thaw out uh, the day before.
1: Yeah. Uh, So I assume from a business standpoint with the traps, as the fur market has declined, you know, have you seen a decline
2: in trap sales as fur prices go down? You can see some of of that impact, but there are, in the past decade, there have been some real bright areas in, uh, in trapping, and where coyote fur was, was in high demand up until just last summer, there, there's usually something that, that's going well. Yeah. So, so like the coyote market was a really strong market. It was used as a, as a trim on uh, high-dollar parkas, and mm. it seemed like almost an insatiable demand for that uh, overseas as well.
0: Yeah, a lot of those in Russia, weren't they?
2: Uh, well, a lot of fur got uh, got exported to Russia, Ukraine, China. Those were some of the major markets uh, for uh, you know for in in user in user codes. Yeah,
1: hey, has it seemed like just to my naked eye with social media and stuff, there seems to be kind of a revitalization of recreational trapping, not so much for fur and making money, but for Property management. Have you seen that impact with Dukes, where it seems like more people are ordering for that reason?
2: We we absolutely have trapping is is growing. It's not growing in the way you might guess, but as as you just mentioned, it's growing as a result of the outdoor community recognizing the benefits of keeping predator numbers in check. Mm-hmm. And we have people that have no prior experience ever trapping that they've got the resources now they've got social media youtube videos i mean you could you could watch youtube videos and and learn to be a trapper uh if you spend more money and buy the proper equipment Mm -hmm. i mean you can you can really you know really develop your skills and whatever you want to do if you want to get coyote numbers down or if you want to get coon numbers down whatever whatever it is you want to do you can learn how to do it yeah we had
1: alan probes on last week and he has a YouTube channel that'll teach you just about everything you need to know. I, I watch several of them throughout the week myself.
2: Yeah. Alan's a great ambassador for trapping and we're real happy, happy to have him on our team doing that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you feel like this momentum of the hunting community trapping to reduce predator numbers, do you feel like that's going to continue or do you think it's, I mean, as far as what you're seeing in, in, your trap sales and that kind of thing. I'm not obviously asking you to give away any sales secrets or production secrets or anything like that, but are are you seeing this trend or are you thinking that this trend is going to continue on and become more popular and maybe be what we hope is a revitalization of of trapping and the trapping industry, not necessarily the fur industry because I'm not convinced that it's not mostly dead.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I wouldn't say the fur business is is dead, but uh, but it is cyclical, and and you'll see some changes in in consumer taste toward uh, toward certain type of, uh, of fur garments. We've seen it happen. Uh, I've seen it happen now two times in my life, and I'm not really that old. But uh, but we think we think the trend in trapping in the general outdoor industry is is just on the cusp of of really really growing big, and it's. We, we see the signs every year when uh, trapping is, is that activity that, that fills a gap. When deer season is over, turkey season is not started yet, people come in here. I mean, we have a small retail shop that, that people stop by, and they're not trappers per se. They're you know, they're from the outdoor community. They're deer hunters. They're turkey hunters, and they're using trapping to fill the gap between seasons. Um, they know that that if they get the predator numbers down, they're going to positively impact uh, on the on the hatch rate. So I, I think it's it's a trend that that may just be starting.
0: Yeah. Well, I know you're, in, in tune with that segment of the outdoor outdoors population than I am but that's kind of the general trend that that you know my general thoughts about the trend as well is that it's just really getting started I think it's got a long way to go I think that you know we we turkey hunters we quail hunters grouse hunters pheasant hunters all of us that love to chase birds that are ground nesting birds are going to become much much more serious about getting rid of some nest predators over the years and years to come. And I think that, you know, it, it's going to take that. It really is going to take yep. that, especially for turkeys. I can speak, speak to them because I'm just so, you know, so involved in that world more so than anything else, but, you know, any of the other birds. But it's going to take us taking back our favorite animal.
2: Yep. I, I think that that's what it takes. Yeah. And, yeah. I you know, I think about, people that uh that are true visionaries in in the in the outdoor community uh Dr. before we even knew him he was uh implementing trapping techniques at his place in in Missouri long time before before we even became acquainted with him and anybody that watches his show they know that uh that it's having a positive impact if you get the mm-hmm. predators off the place you you definitely uh have a have an improved chance of a of a good hatch
1: yeah
0: no yeah, doubt
2: he's,
1: he's a, a big professor of the trapping and you know one of the few biologists who calls for people to trap their lands Honestly, it's it's not something that's talked about much in the scientific circle in my opinion but he definitely has been a big promoter of it and a believer in it and we had him on the show last summer i believe around this time and he made the comment of hey if you don't have any predators. You can raise pulps on a football field, <laughs> and I was like, yeah,
2: "That's absolutely true." <laughs> An- another person that that I would consider a visionary, and you guys may know him. I, I you know, I've not mentioned him it before. It's uh, a gentleman, uh, Dr. George Hurst. He was a uh, he was a professor and wildlife biologist at Mississippi State University. He was one of the early adopters in encouraging uh, encouraging people to get out and and and, and remove predators. Uh, but his program was, was rather rather unique in that uh, him being located at Mississippi State University, he had contacts in the, in the landowner community throughout the state and set up a, an informal network of, of pairing trappers with landowners. So if you didn't know what, anything about trapping at all, you could bring a trapper in. A lot of the guys came in from the north. And uh, when deer season was over, you know, first of February, when when um, when deer season's over with, and and trapping season's still going on, these guys would come in, and they would have a situation where a place was provided for them to live. There may be some money exchanged uh, for them trapping the places, but uh, but it was it made a huge impact uh, in the state when you had a small army of trappers coming in from other places that knew what they were doing and and actively removed a lot of predators and it's uh it was pretty remarkable what he pulled off with such an informal program
1: yeah you you also mentioned in you've you mentioned a couple mossy oak guys cuz strickland and Toxie hayes yeah are they yep. are they big trappers
2: oh i think i think they've been great for trapping uh I've got a rather rather unique story uh, to tell you about Toxie, and I hope he would uh, would appreciate this too. But he was he got really serious about getting the nest predators off of off of his land. So one Saturday, I came into work. I think I was the only one here, and I get a call from uh, from Toxie. He says Hey, this is Toxy. Uh, how many how many of those cage traps is on a pallet? And I said, uh, Well, there's 20. And he says, Well, I'm uh, I'm, I'm going to come down there in a few minutes and maybe get a couple of pallets. So uh, an hour or so goes by, Toxie shows up here with a 30-foot trailer, and he says, let's see how many pallets we can fit on this trailer. What do you say? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that that's one of the things you, you just remember, and it and it puts a smile on your face because he was really serious about it, and, and I think uh, he's he's really improved his land as a result of that.
1: Mm, yeah. 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 Are, are there any other success stories that, I mean, I assume – being Duke's Traps, people would probably let you know a success story where you've heard of people who weren't trapping, began trapping, and started seeing improved turkeys or quail or ground-nesting birds. Have you heard any other stories like that?
2: Well, we do. We, we hear success stories just about every day from, from hunters. They either call or they stop by and, and tell us about all the things they're doing to, uh, to improve mm-hmm. the numbers on their land. And what they often say is the results of trapping are almost immediate. If, if you've got good management practices and you reduce the predators, this this is what makes the difference between having turkey and not having turkey.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no doubt. You know, we talked just very briefly, I guess we, we talked about the result of, or some of the results of, of their actions, but are you guys... Do you get any grief or pushback or threats or anything like that from any of the anti-trappers, anti-fur, bunny hugger?
2: We type? we really we, we really don't, but I'm not inviting that either. But sure. um, you know what I'm gonna say on on PETA and the uh, and the animal rights uh, groups. I, I think they're more interested in swaying public opinion on high-profile consumer products than they are about, uh, you know, having anything to say about what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, their their big attempt is to is to attach their agenda to the environmental movement, along with with cancel culture, which is very convenient because that's what they're trying to do.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, just look at what at what happened with Canada Goose outerwear. I don't know if you guys know that, but uh, but PETA and and other groups were uh, were actively petitioning Canada Goose to get rid of of fur mm. as a as a as a trim on uh, on those high dollar coats, and they I guess they did it, but um, but it you know it really points to a to a sad state when consumer choice is taken away from people. Um, I mean, if you want to wear a coat that's got you know that's got a coyote trim, that should be your right to do that. And, um, and if you don't want to, then that's also your right not to wear it, but, but to actively encourage companies to discontinue the use of fur, um, and trying to say that it's a, that it's against the environmental movement, uh, that, you know, that is just totally, totally a false uh, premise. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know. What do you think? One thing I feel like that might end up hurting us as trappers in the long run is with social media the good things it can do with spreading the news of trapping but you know people post pictures of that raccoon with his paw stuck in the trap you know looking all sad and you know what's about to happen to him do you think that's more of a negative than a positive or would you say that that's good for spreading the news
2: yeah i'm not sure that 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 the people that are receptive to to that from the outdoor side i think that's that's maybe helpful to uh, to have a discussion about what people are doing but uh, but for those people that live in San Francisco or you know on the left left coast is what I'd call them uh, i don't I don't know that there's anything anybody can do much to to sway those people into into understanding that that trapping can be a good thing they've already got it in their mind that it's not so it it's it's a further divide that that I don't know anybody can do anything about. Uh, you try as best you can to uh, to paint the industry in the best light, but somebody's automatically against it. Chances are they're not going to be a part of it anyway. Yeah, and um, that's true. I think you know I think people that live in rural areas and people that are a part of the outdoor outdoor community they just have to decide uh, you know this is who I'm going to associate with. as our own type.
1: Yeah, that's that's a good point. And one one major trend that seems to be happening. I'm sure you're aware of, but you know, Tennessee has extended our trapping season. Georgia has extended their trapping season. A lot of states are going to year round trapping of coons and possums, you know, especially to try to help these ground nesting birds. Are are y'all involved at all, you know, with discussions around that, about like keeping that momentum going to try to get states to, you know, loosen up these trapping walls?
2: We don't have any direct involvement in encouraging states to do that. I think that mostly comes from from the wildlife management side. I do think that it's a good thing if if populations are out of control that there will be more more opportunity time to uh, to do trapping and. And I think that trend's only going to continue. I understand Missouri has extended theirs. Uh, Mississippi has a very long trapping season. I think it starts in November, way before the pelts are prime, and then carries on through, I don't know, at least through the end of March, maybe into April.
1: Mm, Yeah. Yeah, It seems like more states are kind of waking up to that deal of, of, hey, we're, we got to allow people to have every chance to reduce the numbers if they want to.
2: Yeah. On well, a state by state basis, the wildlife departments they they evaluate that if there are serious numbers that that need to be reduced, I think extending the season is, uh, is makes the most sense.
0: hmm Yeah. Cameron and I are of the mindset that for those turkey hunters out there who only turkey hunt, they don't deer hunt that whatever they can do on a legislative, you know, that they want to get changed within their government, their state government, if they approach it from the angle of it will benefit deer, then there's a real good chance it'll get done. (laughs) So, you know, the rest of us, Cameron doesn't deer hunt, I deer hunt. So, you know, I can say, well, we need to, hey, wildlife, agency or hey conservation advisory board we need to do this you know To we need to make it easier to trap coons and here's how it'll benefit the deer population which we know it really won't it'll be more corn for the deer to eat if we <laughs> can get rid of, of the coons and get them out of these deer feeders it'll be more corn for the deer to eat then the state agencies would be all over it they'd be like oh it helps the deer let's do it <laughs> but yeah. um you know it's On a serious note, I want to, I do want to talk some trapping with you. So, and speaking of that corn, my, I guess one of my best uh, angles or approaches in trapping raccoons is to set several DPs around my corn feeder. What is, what are your thoughts on, on baiting an area before you actually set traps out? to trap raccoons, you know, and bringing them into an area. Is that been a pretty effective strategy or if if you had to only take one approach, I guess, would you take that approach or something else like focusing on trapping around a den area or something along those lines? What what would be your number one approach to
2: Okay, so if you've got deer feeders already out, you've got a bait plot right there and <clears throat> There's no need to, to bait anything additional to that. I think uh, Alan, Alan Probst talked about this quite a bit of, of putting DP traps on the trails leading into the deer feeders, and I, and I thought about that for a little bit, and, I, and it actually makes a lot of sense. If you put them right by the deer feeders, you got competition. Uh, maybe they want some deer feed. Maybe they would not want to put their hands in a, in a, um, in a trap, but... Mm-hmm if they're on a trail on the way to the deer feeder um i think that's one of the one of the best places that you get them um you set that trap right by their nose they're coming right by there and and you get them before they get access to the you know, to the deer feed um water trapping that's another place you're going to catch them um because they have to go to water mm. you look for sign you see their feet uh Feet prints all around lakes, along streams. Just depends on what what you've got. But uh, but if you see sign, they're there, and uh, put a DP trap down.
3: Yeah.
1: Do you do you get more of the dog proofs or more of the lifestyle traps for let's just say raccoons, possums? Do you feel like more people are using the dog proofs or the live traps?
2: I think it's a combination of both. And it depends on the circumstances. If you're managing a place that that you can visit daily, mm-hmm. it may work out best uh, to uh, to have have the dog-proof traps out primarily. But if you um, only visit only visit your land on the weekends, you can put out cage traps and and that be the best solution uh, because they'll be caught and uh, and be confined. But you definitely wouldn't want to put a dog-proof trap out and then. Uh, you know, come back and check it the next weekend because uh, you just wouldn't want to put an animal through that, leave it in a trap like that. Uh, you want to be able to take care of it as soon as possible.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not sure about other states, but I know Alabama, if you've got a trap out, a trap like a DP, you know, a catch and hold trap or a live trap. I don't know if that's, you know, if that regulation's in place for all traps or just the you know the the catch and hold traps like a DP,
2: right? Right. I, I think every state is a little different. Most of them in the southeast that we know about have a 24 hour check. Uh, so it's it's just a good idea to uh, to come back and check the traps every every 24 hours, and and if you got something in it, you can deal with it and and set mm-hmm. that trap back, and and it'll be ready for the next one that comes along.
0: Yeah. What do you you know? We talked just. Briefly, about water trapping is there in your experience a better time of the year for trapping along water for those of us who can trap year round for raccoons and other nest predators mm-hmm.
2: i I don't think there's a huge huge difference year round. I mean raccoons have to have to have a water source uh they're going to get it from a stream, a river or a creek or a lake whatever is 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 around and and they're going to come back to it because they have to have water I think I think if you see tracks put a trap down there they're gonna be back and if they're hungry they're gonna put their foot in it and then you're gonna have have one of those removed
3: yeah
1: yeah I, I guess I could see if you were in a massive drought or something water trapping would probably be really effective because you narrow down the area they can be in
2: <laughs> yeah I think that may be true too
1: mm-hmm and you know I feel like in those hotter, or really cold months is probably even more vital to make sure you're checking your traps really often because we all don't want the animal to suffer. We want it to be as as humane as possible.
2: Yeah, like I said, 24-hour checks are about standard in in the region where we are. Some of the western states have, have more lengthy uh, check uh, laws, but where we are, I, I, most of the people I know, they're, they're running their traps every morning.
0: Yeah. Well, I am... A member of the NTA, the National Trappers Association, for those listening who don't know what that stands for, and I get their publication. I think it comes out every other month. It comes out bi-monthly, I think.
2: Yep, yep, I think
0: so. Or semi-monthly. Sorry. So what I, I read an article in there about den trapping for for raccoons and. You know, there were some pictures in there, and I guess, you know, if I spent some time I got on YouTube, I'd, I'd probably find some some good videos to look at. But specifically, you know, I, I walk around in the woods and walk around these hardwood bottoms, and it's difficult for me to identify a den tree. I mean, obviously, if there's a dead oak tree that's hollowed out and, you know, it's bigger around that I can put my arms around, and I can see some wood scraps down at the bottom, you know, some small wood pieces, wood shavings, whatever, down at the bottom of that tree, and see some tracks going in and out of that hole in the tree, that kind of thing, I'm going to assume that's a den tree. But generally, what, where might we look for some den trees in the southeast where, quite honestly, one hardwood bottom looks just like another?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I might, I might not be able to answer that question because... Uh... I'm just not out there that much, looking at looking at what trees, maybe den, you know, den type trees. But I do know some big numbers get harvested from you know, from dens. I remember remember a video some years ago that that uh, that a couple of uh, guys in Pennsylvania made. They basically trapped dens. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them were abandoned coal um, coal type mines, and the coons were denned up in there. But they were they would come out come out to feed and and they made sure those traps were right there and those guys they really set some records uh mainly using dog proof traps they caught close to a thousand coon toward the end of the season and and it just proved you know if somebody's really you know really productive with those dog proof type traps they can they can take some numbers and and they clearly did
0: yeah yeah I mean, to me, it seems like it'd be a lot easier in an area where there's some agriculture and you've just got wood lots, you know, and the raccoons have limited trees to make a den in. That seems obvious to me that that would be easier than, you know, a, a thousand acres of hardwoods and creeks and streams meandering through it and that kind of thing. I just, uh, i I am not going to say I would struggle with it, even though I probably would, but I can imagine it'd be a lot of, of time and a lot of shoe leather burned to find that right den tree or, you know, shoot, now that I'm talking out loud, maybe it's just a matter of finding that game trail and following the game trail until you run across a, a den tree, you know, and setting up yeah. around that. It'd be a good question to, to, you know, ask somebody that lives in the southeast that could be able to, to spot that.
2: Yeah, that'd be helpful I don't know that I could uh, that I could tell you off the top of my head just what to look for, but uh, but they're out there.
0: Oh yeah, definitely, definitely.
1: Yeah, you mentioned you were part of the NTA, which is what is that, the National Trappers Association? Yes. Bill, do you are there any other trapping type, you know, conservation organizations or associations like that that you would suggest that people maybe take a look at joining?
2: Yeah, yeah, sure. The the two main ones uh, that that serve trapper interests are the uh, National Trappers Association and Fur Takers of America, and almost, I mean, virtually every state has a, a state trapping association. Some of them are bigger than others, um, but uh, anybody interested in trapping can join their state association and attend meetings and learn, you know, learn, from, learn from the members how to, how to trap, learn a lot of different techniques. Uh, we're active with the Mississippi Trappers Association. They have um, they have a banquet one time a year, and they have a um, they have a little mini convention too. Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. I saw this has been years ago. And the state's still doing it, but you know, Bill, I live in Alabama, and so I'm on because I'm a license holder. I'm on the state's email list and they emailed out a little newsletter press release type thing that you know they were holding a trapping school and Mm -hmm. it was primarily for kids to learn trapping but it was basically a kid and parent type deal come in for you know it was a two-day class and the first day they taught you trapping you know how to do it ethically what you know how to set up how to set traps and then that afternoon they went out and they actually set traps out in the field and then went back and checked them the next day and then you know whatever they had caught they skinned and you know prepared the the didn't actually tan obviously but prepared it for whatever the next step of that you know was going to be for the use of that animal and when I first saw that I thought man that's awesome that the state's doing that and they've since I think, done it every single year, and I would imagine there's a great deal of that that still goes on, you know, across the country, and, you know, that probably would be a good place for a lot of our listeners, if they were interested in in learning some more, to get some more information on trapping, you know, to, to contact their state wildlife agency or game and fish department or whatever else and see if they're having any sort of instructional class or workshop around the area that they're in.
2: That that is a great idea to do that. Um, I know the program you're speaking of in Alabama. Uh, one of my father's good friends, Mike Severing, is uh, yeah. was uh, was involved in that, uh, and I, I can't tell you how many times I've met people, <clears throat> just at random, that, that have have told us about that being the initial way they learned to trap was going to one of Mike's uh, seminars. And, and other states do things like that, too. They'll have a, a young group youth trapper training. Um, some states, like Pennsylvania, they have a very, very large um, uh, association in multiple districts, and, and they do that all the time. It's it's what's necessary. If uh, somebody's interested in trapping, they need to find the resources to learn about it, and, and I, I think those associations doing that provides great leadership.
0: Yeah, well, and I, I think it's crucial, you know, that that the trapping tradition and the activity of trapping is carried on for future generations. And, you know, if it, if it comes down to a matter of trapping being what feeds the fur market and, you know, I, I spoke, I think it was last week, a, a little bit about how COVID has affected the fur market, not just in the U.S. but internationally, and you know if it's going to come down to just the fur market and trapping and trapping in the fur market and how they're you know so closely tied to one another for trapping to continue, then you know it's it's something that we could see in the not too distant future going away. But you know, like I said earlier, you know I think that that hunters and and outdoorsmen are. Are getting more into it, and you know, will be that revival of of trapping, and maybe that's just the Southerner in me that's speaking. That you know, I never let let me think back for a minute here and, and rattle my old brain. But the first experience I had in someone running a real trap line was in one of the hunting clubs I was in, and I was. 16 or 17 years old i think the guy was a year older than me who was running the trap line and he and i ended up in college together and so that would have been yeah late 80s like 87 through 89 that he was actively running that trap line and i think and you i'm i know you can tell me better but i think fur prices were still pretty darn high at that point in time
2: yeah, mm-hmm. fur prices. Fur prices were high from the late seventies through the late eighties. Yeah, it was it was a special time that that I'm glad I had the opportunity to be um, you know, to to understand what was going on, uh, even though I was still fairly young at that at that time. But there were people people running trap lines and coon hunting that made more money doing that than they did working a factory job. Mm-hmm. I mean, you had had bobcat prices that were $150 uh, there were times when otter prices were well over $100 coon prices were 20 25 on so, in some sections red foxes were $50 gray foxes were 50 i mean and that was you know the dollar went a lot further back then and and these were guys maybe they're just making a you know $150 working in a in a factory and they're doing that in one night uh, mm-hmm. so so it, it created uh, quite a, you know, quite a stir and had, had a big community of, of trappers all over this country that were roaming hills in the forest, flying their trade.
0: Yeah. I think... Yeah. You know, and again, tell me if something different if I'm if I'm wrong here. But I think you know, once those fur prices came down, I think trapping really in the southeast really got to be a pastime. Am I wrong in in thinking that? Was there more going on, and I just wasn't around it?
2: Okay, so the the cyclicality of the of the fur market from the late '70s, you know, it was strong. Uh, around '89, '90, '91, those were some of the weaker years, and in the up until maybe '96, um, it looked like the fur business was was going away. That the, that there was going to be nothing left of it. Uh, consumer taste uh, in fashion changed. People didn't want to be caught dead wearing a fur coat. And and then the export markets improved. Russia became a huge uh, user of uh, of wild fur from the United States. And then China was right on you know right on the edge of of becoming a lot more prosperous too. So. So you saw fur as a not only as a fashion but but a status symbol in in those countries that were that were growing pretty rapidly.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so so I wouldn't I wouldn't categorize the fur business as dead. I've seen it in much worse shape than it is right now. And when consumer tastes change, fashion trends change, you can see you can see fur come back. But um, I think right now you're you're going to see it for you know for a few years anyway that. Uh, that it's that it's out of fashion in, in parts of the world. I mean if the export markets of Russia and Ukraine are not there and China's in a serious recession, you're probably gonna see a lot less fur being you know, being trapped because there's just not the incentive. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well and I appreciate you, you know, making that clear that, you know, yes one the value of one animal may be down on the on the in the fur market, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're all down. And so uh, I, I appreciate that.
1: Yeah. Are there any species, you know, this year that are still pretty profitable to trap? You know, and there's more than just fur. I guess you got the beaver, you got those castor glands and the skunks, and I guess you can get more than just fur out of some animals.
2: That was that was what I was about to say, and you took the words right out of my mouth. Uh, the beaver market is, is on an upswing. Uh, the fur market for beaver is... Uh, Is going to be higher still, maybe five, six, seven dollars. I'm hearing uh, for um, for green skins, but but the beaver also has valuable castor glands. The tails can be sold. Um, I bought a wallet several years ago that was made out of a beaver tail, and it is one of the nicest looking wallets. I mean, it just has a texture to it that's uh, that's really special. It's kind of like the people that have a beaver you know beaver tail wallet, uh, they all know um when they're around each other that uh they've got a nice a nice wallet
0: mm-hmm. and they're not bad
2: to eat i'll let you do that but uh <laughs> but <laughs> i don't know it's it's probably it's just something mental but i've had i've had stew made from from beaver meat before and and it was if you didn't know it you thought it was uh it was beef it was it was really good
3: mm. yeah
2: well, you know, with a lot of meats, it's more mental than it is anything. Uh, you can prepare prepare food lots of ways that would make it really, really delicious.
0: Uh, there's no doubt about that. I think the most tender cut of beef I've ever had is tongue. And all hmm. I could think about when I was eating it is, that cow's tasting me back. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's uh, a weird concept for sure.
0: It is, it is. But it was outstanding. I mean, the taste, the the texture, the tenderness. It was it was fantastic. But mentally, I'm thinking, yeah, here I am making out with this cow, and the cow's tasting me right back. So. <laughs> oh man but yeah beavers uh, my next beaver i'm going to skin out and grind and and try to make burger out of it and see how it turns out
2: Hmm. i bet it would be good
1: yeah i've I've never eaten a beaver have the back to kind of a business standpoint have, have there been any supply chain issues with, you know, it just seems like everything's in having supply chain issues for, for getting the traps in and stuff. Cause I mean, like I said, I got my traps from you in like eight hours.
2: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well we jump through hoops just because of who you are, but, uh... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, about what I would say about supply chain is that I think the, I think the trap and supply trade, relative to to some other business, did a pretty fantastic job of, of having inventory when people needed it. There were certainly holes here and there, but, but the, most of the products were available, even if there was a temporary time, like a month or so, that, that people couldn't get a certain product. But uh, I think most of the dealers in the trap and supply trade carry bigger inventories than than other trades do.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And
2: so, relatively speaking, I think the trap and supply trade weathered the storm better than better than most. Interesting.
1: Well, that's cool. And y'all are based out of West Point, Mississippi. Is that right? Yep, we're yep we're based out of West Point. And and,
2: and uh, shipped
1: anywhere in the country.
2: We shipped anywhere in the country. Uh, we have international customers as well, and uh, we ship everywhere. That's awesome.
1: Well, uh, hopefully, some of our listeners will. Grab some Duke traps and get out and wear out some raccoons, possums, coyotes, whatever. Because I mean, y'all have traps for everything—beavers, all all type of animals, right?
2: That's what we try to have—is something for every major species, and, and for a lot of the species, we've got multiple traps for them. And the the simple traps, the ones that we sell the most of, of course, going to be the dog proof traps. You got some of those. Mm-hmm. For coon and and as people develop their skill for trapping and want to get into coyote trapping we sell a variety of foothold traps for coyotes the most popular one would be our 550 trap yeah and it's a yeah you guys may be familiar with it a little bit but it's a smooth trap that is very easy on the animal and very effective very secure yeah. ready to go but those are the trends we're seeing going right now is for coons dog proof traps it's almost predictable somebody gets started trapping this is what they what they begin to use
0: yeah cameron is that what you have for coyotes is it the 550 i'm Mm -hmm. not
1: sure uh, honestly (laughs) okay i don't i'm not going to claim to remember to be completely honest but i got something for coyotes i'm not
0: judging you i can't remember what i had for breakfast so i'm i'm not judging you
1: (laughs) yeah there you go
0: excellent well, Cameron, do you have any other questions for Bill?
1: No, I think that about wraps it up. I, I really appreciate you joining us. And, you know, it's just fascinating to hear kind of the family history of seeing all the different phases of the fur market and how trappings, in my mind, is being revitalized from conservation efforts. And seems like you're seeing that, too. And appreciate Duke's traps. And hopefully I'll be telling you about a lot of success from this fall and winter with your traps.
2: Well, it's it's been a been a lot of fun uh, being on the program, and I I'm honored to be asked to do that. I like what you guys are doing. You're you're taking a different approach, and and talking about the methods that that are part of the big picture from the land management trapping is is an integral part of that, and and I just appreciate you guys taking the time to do that because I think it's only going to keep growing. Yeah, well, we hope so.
0: Definitely, Bill. Before we go, do you want to? Throw out a telephone number for somebody to call if they want to order some traps directly from, from you guys?
2: Yeah, yep, yeah, be glad to. Our website is informational in content. Uh, you can get familiar with any of the products, and that website is uh, duketraps.com. Our phone number is local number in, in Mississippi at 662 494 6767. We have a small office here and, and a warehouse. People can stop by if they wish, or they can can call and order anything that that they need. Excellent, fantastic.
0: Thank you again. This has been a lot of fun, and enjoy the history part of it, you know, and and learning about you growing up, seeing you know being in that fur buying business, and also learning about how your grandparents' business just transformed over the years and you know what you guys are doing today that that's been a lot of fun and Cameron is right you are a heck of a nice guy but I wouldn't say <laughs> that too loud I don't want you getting a big head on us now <laughs> so.
2: you guys see, you guys seem nice too and it, it has been a lot of fun I do appreciate uh, what you're doing well,
0: fantastic yeah. well, thanks a bunch and good luck this year setting some traps I hope you get rid of some nest predators yourself and let's stay in touch
2: all right very good Thank you, guys. Thank you, Bill. Yep, see
0: you. Bye. Well, I didn't want to butter him up too much there at the end, but he is a dang nice guy. I I enjoyed that conversation. That was fun.
1: Yeah, I really did, too. I think it's really cool how it's a third-generation type business. Love that kind of stuff. Yeah. That's the American dream, you know, and I just love that stuff. And as as you all heard, I'm supporting that business today (laughs) and i think their products are great their dps are as simple as they come as i said you pull it in put that little catch and stick it in the ground and roll on yeah getting easier than that nice nice price point on it too so cool stuff from bill duke and a great second entry into our series on predator control
0: Mm mm-hmm well What do you say... I just want to make a a proposal. What do you say that after you and I do our episode on trapping, Mm -hmm. we have an episode on chipmunk trapping and have the expert chipmunk trapper come join us on the show and tell us how that can help make our turkey population better by trapping chipmunks. I mean...
1: I wouldn't doubt if chipmunks steal an egg, but I just don't know that they're quite the problem. You they're know?
0: stealing acorns that our turkeys need to get through their tough winters that we're having.
1: There you go. I hey, I might let you go solo on that one, but you know don't don't take it personal.
0: Well, <laughs> all right, that's going to be our very first episode on the Chipmunk Hunter podcast. The chipmunk and. That will air in about two months, so keep your eyes and ears open for that on your favorite podcast player, and I will be the host of that show.
1: Yeah, good luck with that. I imagine it might take a few more years to reach a million downloads than it did the Turkey Hunter podcast, but hey, you never know. There's a niche for everything. I
0: think you're saying that because you're telling me you're not going to be a co-host on the show, on the new show, so you're saying it's not going to be as good as this one. I think I'm getting the impression that that's where you're going with that comment
1: it's not a lack of me it's more of a lack of good content from chipmunks i mean just screw chipmunks overall who wants to listen to it you know more
0: (laughs) i love to hate them
1: (laughs) yeah you you have a special burning passion against chipmunks i will say I,
0: i have started my chipmunk my fall chipmunk trapping program effective today and this week twice when i've walked outside i have heard that incessant obnoxious chirping chirp 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 i mean just incessantly and that tells me this time yeah so i'll have i'll have an update for you guys on my chipmunk count next week but in the meantime i have the favor of the week this week all right let's hear it at the end of that podcast interview with bill duke he gave out the phone number for duke traps and my favor of the week is and i know some of you guys and ladies listening are going to call that number and order some traps directly from duke and I think that's a splendid idea. But my favor is when you call that number, mention to Bill that you heard him on the Turkey Hunter podcast, not the Chipmunk Hunter podcast. That I won't have him on that for another couple of months, but the Turkey Hunter podcast. So just mention that to him. And again, Cameron and I get nothing from that other than these Guests take time out of their schedules to and running their businesses and being with their families to come on this show and share their knowledge with us. And to me, I think that's the least we can do is give back and say, Hey, the time that you gave to me, I'm letting you know that I'm ordering this product because I need it, I want it, and because I heard you on the podcast. Thank you for giving your time to. Cameron and Andy and all all of the listeners. So if you would do that when you call over there at Duke Traps and order some traps this week cuz I know some of you guys are going to be doing that. Heck, I'm I'm going to be doing it because I think I'm I'm not 100% committed. Let me let me add to that. I know that I'm going to. I'm just not 100% committed on the number of traps that I'm going to buy and donate. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to buy and donate some traps for my hunting club. And I believe what I'm going to do instead of me being the one running the trap line all the time down there, or when I can get to it during deer season, I'm going to put the traps on a nail in the sign out room, the sign out shed, and just put a little clipboard beside it with a pen hanging from the clipboard that says, please go put these out and trap some raccoons and possums, number one. Number two, please don't forget where you put them. And please, (laughs) number three, please bring them back when you are done. Yes. So it'll be like a library book. You can check it out, use it, do some good for the turkeys, and bring them on back. And so I'm pretty sure I'm going to do that. And I may just start with a smaller number, you know, start with 10 or 12, something like that for this season, this deer season, and see how many I have at the end of deer season, how many are are still, you know, in possession by the club. So,
1: yeah, I think that's an excellent idea.
0: So let's get out there. Let's get involved in trapping. And to do that, we need supplies. We need knowledge. We have access to all of those right there at our fingertips. Let's support Bill and Duke's traps, and let's get out there and get some nest predators out out of circulation. So what do you think?
1: Good stuff. I'm thinking wrap us up.
0: Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. We know that you have choices. We appreciate you spending your time with us. We hope you have a wonderful week and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thanks for tuning in. You were just listening to the Turkey Hunter podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please go on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review.